I hope you have the Bible with you this morning, and if you do, I would invite you to open it to Acts chapter 26, where we will be continuing our study of the book of Acts this morning. And while you were turning there, uh, Merle, you just said the very words that were running through my head. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the God that you are here this morning worshiping and serving is a faithful God. He is a faithful God. You can trust him in every way. He is the same today as he's always been, and he always will be. I want you to stop for a moment. I would put every, I mean, I, I asked you to open your Bible, so I guess you may be flipping through pages, but I want you to stop for a moment and think about what that means or the, the importance of that. I'm serious. We sometimes, we, we, like, we're used to doing church and we're used to running through things. We're used to knowing the things we know about God. And so when I say things like God is faithful, you think, oh yeah, I know that God is faithful. But stop for a moment and think about the most unchanging thing you know of in this world, like that you see around you, either a person or a thing. Maybe my mind's on Germany this morning a bit, but you know, when you're over there, you see history that you don't, we don't see here. You see buildings that have been there for much, much longer than what the buildings are, have been for, here, for, here, around for here. And, and you think of those kind of things, and you think, this, this, this is so enduring. And yet you also know that they're going to crumble eventually, aren't they? They're decaying. Think of the most rock-steady, faithful thing you know of in this world, and you'll immediately realize that even that changes over time, doesn't it? It degrades. It gets worse. It fades. It's not as good anymore. It begins to hurt. Maybe they hurt you if you're thinking of a person. They change their mind. All of those things set in sharp focus when you contrast it with the faithfulness of God who doesn't change, whom you can depend on completely. Listen, I know. I know there's people here this morning that are praising God for his, the good things they've seen, and I know there's people here who are probably going through something that they'd rather not go through, who are struggling with something they'd rather not struggle, who are maybe just feeling a bit detached when they really wish they wouldn't. The message is the same regardless. God is faithful. You can trust him. You can throw everything you have on him. There's not another person in this room that you can say that about. And I hope, as husbands and wives, as moms and dads, that we are faithful to each other, that we're faithful to our families and our children. But even that is a, a weak, a limited a glass-veiled, so to speak, picture of what God's faithfulness is like. And the story we're going to read, we've been reading, but we're going to read again, we're going to continue again this morning in our text, is about that message of God's faithfulness. The other word I was thinking of as I was getting ready to come up here is the word sovereignty. And you know, if you've been here before, you know that uh, uh, we, we have... Uh, <laughs> We've been bumping up against that word over and over again in the, in the study of the book of Acts. And, and here we are again this morning. As you're recounting stories of God's faithfulness, you recognize that his faithfulness, his sovereignty is demonstrated. For your life has taken turns and ups and downs and places whether you wanted to go to or didn't want to go to. And many of them, if you're honest, many of them when you look back, you can see that God was right. We're going to get to a sentence here in the text today that is going to feed into that. But for most of us, many of us can look back at some of those twists and turns and recognize that God was right. Can I assure you, can I have you 
sharpen your faith a bit, so to speak, this morning, to say that even those things that you don't yet look back and, and, and see that God was right, you will someday look back and see that God was right. That the way God worked this out was exactly how it should have been. I know that's hard to swallow sometimes. I have no doubt that for Paul, in the situation he was in, that was sometimes hard to swallow, wasn't it? God, I trust in your sovereignty and your faithfulness to me, and yet sometimes I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Well, today we get to have the testimony of all testimonies, if I can say that once again. So let's read the text together. Let's uh, see what Acts chapter 26 has to say. As Paul is standing, remember he was in Festus' presence, who is now in control over him. Festus didn't know what to do with him. In fact, Festus agreed to some degree that he was innocent, and yet didn't want to release him, didn't know what to do. And Paul had appealed to Caesar, so he had to go to Caesar. And here comes King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. And he says, you know about Jews. You're very familiar with them. I want you to hear what this man has to say. And that's today. We're going to read in verse, uh, starting in verse 1. We're going to go all the way through verse 23. It's a bit of a longer text than I typically preach through, but a lot of it is stuff that we've heard before. We're going to begin in verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. He's going to do this again. He's done it before. He's going to do it again. He says in verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day." And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Verse 9, I myself, he continues, was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And then he says in verse 13, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when, I had, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Verse 19, he continues. He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. God, it's your text. I say this every Sunday, but it doesn't change ever. That's why I keep saying it. It's your word inspired by you, what you want us to know. And so we humbly submit and, it, and eagerly await to see what you would teach us from it this morning. May our ears and our eyes and our brains and our hearts be open to what you have to say. Keep us from being distracted. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, this story that he says today before Agrippa is nothing new. We're going to jump in here just to kind of lay out the story. But he stands not just for the first time, for the second time, the third time, and he's making his defense in front of people who are making accusations against him. I don't know if you've ever felt like you have been uh, saying things and no one is listening or that you've had to say the same thing more than once or that the point doesn't seem to get through, or that you might get tired of, of uh, defending or excusing or saying something again. But I'm sure Paul must have felt that way in this situation. He stretched out his hand in an appeal for listening, and he says, let me give you my defense again. Now, since we've already covered this in chapter 22, and in fact, we saw the events happen way back in chapter uh, 9, 10 when they happened, Let's uh, just kind of briefly go through, because Paul, again, as he always does, he lays out a very well-formed argument for why he's on trial today. And he does a few things along the way that we're going to pay attention to. First of all, he gives a little introduction as he's coming to Agrippa. We're just going to kind of high-level this thing right now, because, again, we went through it. If you want to go back and see the details, he's going to had given much of the same, not quite the same, but much of the same back in chapter 22. He addresses Agrippa, and he immediately says, hey, by the way, I want to make sure you know, as I politely address you, and I'm so glad that you're here to listen to this, that this is a religious matter, not a civil matter. The thing we're talking about, the issue at play here, what, why I'm being accused is not a civil matter. Though I'm in a civil court, it's not a civil matter. And then in verses four through eight, really he gives his argument. He says, this is why I'm being accused. This is why I'm on trial. If you would read back through those, I read them for you a little bit ago, but if you read back through there, that's his argument. He says, you know what? They have known from when I was a little boy that I've been very Jewish, like very Jewish, of the strictest of all the sects. I was a Pharisee. They know all that. In fact, if they'd be willing to be honest, they would tell you that. You know what he says? I am actually following the same hope that they themselves have. Paul is very careful, by the way. He says, I, I, I will tell you everything I can to make you see that I am not deviating from my Jewish roots. I'm not walking away from them. I'm not discarding them. I'm not saying that they were wrong. In fact, I'm telling you they were right. They're just more right than what you're willing to admit at this point so far, speaking to the other Jews. He says, they know all those things. I am here because of the same hope. Which is why he ends a bit with that it's a sort of incredulous kind of statement, kind of question. Why is, it, why is it crazy to you that God raises from the dead? You believe that already, Jews. At least some of you do. I believe the same thing. This is why I'm here. He then continues to give 
his proof. And his proof, may I remind you again, is the best proof that any of you can ever offer as a defense for Christianity. His proof is his own story. His proof is what Christ Jesus has done for him. That's why you see in verses 9 to 11, he says, this is who I was. He's proving his argument that he just gave. He says, this is who I was. This is where I began. This is my life. In fact, he says, I was convinced I should oppose Jesus. I did so. I did so violently. I did so with the blessing of these people that are standing right here today accusing me. That's who I was. But then, this is what happened. And again, we have the story, which we know so well, and we should know well. We call it, in fact, we call it the Damascus Road Experience, and we even use that as a, as a title or as a, as, a, as a picture of what happens to us when we come to Christ. Because Paul says, in this capacity, violently opposing, in my raging fury, opposing the name of Jesus, I went to do exactly those things, and Jesus arrested me. I thought I could see. Paul uses a lot of this language. I thought I could see, but Jesus blinded me so that I would realize I did not see at all. And when he did that, in fact, he opened my eyes to the real truth. And he goes through the story. There's a few slight deviations from what he said before. Nothing that we should ever say is a contradiction, but just a recognition that as the story comes out, he's choosing to highlight different things or to say different things. We should know it's the same story we read earlier in the book of Acts. This is how I was changed. These are the things that happened to me when Jesus came and, and stopped me in my tracks, literally. And in fact, Jesus gave me a new direction in life. Not only did he change my understanding, he changed the direction of my life. And instead of pursuing people against the name of Jesus, I began to pursue people for the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus helping them to see the same thing. And that's how he ends with, he says, this is who I am now. That's what I'm doing. He says, I wasn't disobedient to Jesus. And really, that we should see that as sort of uh, a rhetorical kind of statement. For he's really saying, how could I be? When the God of heaven stops you in your tracks, how can you be disobedient to what he has to say? This is who I am now. And that is his proof for why he was under trial at that moment. Notice, by the way, he says this is a religious kind of discussion, but he also is peeling back layers, isn't he? Because if anybody who's sitting there paying attention and seeing that there's these Jewish leaders and they realize that Paul used to be on their side, he used to be one of their greatest advocates, in fact, and now he's on this side because he has changed for some reason, you begin to realize there's layers peeled away that quite perhaps he is actually on trial just because they can't stand him anymore because he left and is doing something else, right? That it's more of a personal petty thing as much as it is that they disagree with him. Now, they do disagree with him, don't get me wrong, because they don't acknowledge even to this day that Jesus of Nazareth was the one about whom the scriptures foretold, the prophets would speak of. Again, Paul is so careful, right? At the very end, he says, that's why I continue doing what I'm doing. I'm being obedient to Jesus. In fact, I'm not saying anything that the prophets and Moses themselves don't say. 
I've said this before in these kind of settings. I would challenge you again in an era or in a, in a culture where we sometimes very much, very willingly uh, sort of toss aside the Old Testament for the New Testament. And I would tell you, let, let's make sure I interrupt myself here. I would tell you we are New Testament believers. We're New Covenant believers. No question about that. But Jesus himself said we don't just get rid of there. He said, I came to fulfill those things. I, I, would, I encourage you to understand or to figure out how can I represent the gospel of Jesus Christ from what the Old Testament has to say. It is there. A few pictures, in fact, were referred to just this morning up here. It's there. Everything God did through the choosing of Israel and bringing them, and he still loves them, by the way. But everything he did was a foreshadow, a taste of what he was going to do through Jesus Christ. And those pictures sometimes speak more clearly than any other picture we have. We would do well to not toss it aside. All right. Having moved through the story in, gener in generalities, for you know the story, we've taught through the story, we've gone in depth with some of those things, I want to bring just three different things, actually really it's two verses, and then it is a third verse, but it's really kind of a, it's not a caution, it's a, it's a let's make sure we're paying attention. Let's jump in. There's three verses, three specific things I want to f highlight this morning that I think we should uh, just sort of spend a little extra time with. It's this ending part of his argument where Paul says in verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Again, I, I, this is an effort here. This is a, I, 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 I pause here and I make highlight of this verse simply for the reason that it is so easy for us, even those of us who are called by the name of Christ and are following him and want to be a Christian and want to be a good example, it's so easy for us sometimes to sort of cruise control some of these things. In the context of the specific argument, Paul is saying, listen, I have this hope of the resurrection. I just believe that the first one, the most important one, already happened in Jesus because he's the Messiah. And the ones that are accusing me don't believe that. And he says, why would you think that's impossible? Why do you come against that? But I want to take a step back this morning for, as I share this verse with you to say, as a general statement, Think about that just at face value, that, that, that phrase that's up there. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Think for a moment what kind of God you would be worshiping if you were not able to raise the dead. This is an important question, by the way. For every one of us, we've had a few reminders this morning. We'll have a big one this afternoon. I personally had a big one this morning when I participated in the burial of Edwin. We all have the reminders. None of us is unaware of the fact that there is one thing that will happen to us sometime, right? There's one thing that all mankind has in common. I mean, there's a few more things than that. But there's at least one thing, and that's the end of man, which will result in what? You say it. Death. The wages of sin is death, right? It's the result of what Adam did and every human being since then does. We are separated from God. We, the end result is death. We all know it. Think of that for a moment. If you worship a God that cannot raise from the dead, what kind of God are you worshiping? How much good is he, if I can put it that way? Right? What a miserable lot if we are giving ourselves in service and in worship and in and lifestyle and all these kind of things when in the end we're going to die and he can't do anything about it. 
Listen, that is the futility of every other God, little g, in the rest of the world. They can't do that. Why is it thought incredible by any of us that God raises the dead? It is the very foundation, it's the very cornerstone, it's the thing that gives us the hope. That helps us to see that the end that we see here, which is to be in a box and to be lowered in the ground or whatever other mechanism you want to do, is not the end actually. Amen. Hallelujah. Why? Do we act sometimes as if we're serving a God that can't raise the dead? There might be more there, but I want to come to another theme which runs so prevalent through Scripture and comes again in the story of Paul in both tangible, physical ways, but we're going to see the spiritual application as well. In verse 13, as he comes to King Agrippa, and he says, hey, I was on my way to Damascus. I was on my way to pursue and to kill and to punish and to bring into, into captivity, and a light shone around me. And for the first time, he uses this phrase in the book of Acts, and it says, he says, the light that shone around me was brighter then the sun. So for most of us, if I would ask you what's the brightest light you know of, you would probably say the sun, right? That would be a pretty correct answer. You can't look at it. Don't look at it. It's bad for your eyes, right? Even when we had an eclipse, you couldn't hardly look at it, right? You missed it, in fact, if you look at it directly. You had to have some special device or kind of side. And he says, I was walking in the middle of the day and a light shone that was brighter, <clears throat> brighter than the sun. And this theme of light is so prevalent. Just in his story, notice what he says a few verses later. If you flip over and look in verse 17, he says, this light blinded me, and Jesus told me I'm going to go and I'm going to share the gospel with people, and the gospel sharing business, what that's about, look at what he says. He says that they may turn from darkness to light. If you would read in here, and I'm not going to take you to every example because it would take too long this morning, but if you would read in the Bible, there are so many things in there that, that pick up on this theme of darkness and light, right? Start with the very first verses, right? In the beginning, the earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over it. And then what did God do? God spoke, and he said, let there be light, and light came. If you would read the beginning of the Gospels, the Gospel of John uses that same phrase, right? That the light came into the darkness. Jesus was that light. And this theme is present. He says, Jesus said to Paul, Saul at that time still, but Paul as we know him, I'm going to send you to people and you will open their eyes so that they may go from darkness into light. And he in fact strengthens what he's saying because he says from the kingdom of Satan, darkness, to the kingdom of God, light. God dwells in unapproachable light. Light represents perfection and purity. The light he's speaking of refers to the glory of God. The light he's speaking of also refers to the illumination, the wisdom, the understanding that comes from God. That's why the wisdom, the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. Because it begins with him. It's the light, his illumination. By the way, he picks up again, Paul picks up again at the very end of it. He says, that's why I'm going on and doing all these things that Christ, I talked about what Christ would suffer and rise so that he might be proclaimed light. He might proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. 
This theme is picked up in Scripture. Let me show you a few verses this morning. That's all we'll have time for. Isaiah chapter 60. We're going to go to the Old Testament first because it's where God already is talking about light and already talking about Jesus, by the way. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. In another section, Isaiah says, the people are dwelling in a land of darkness, a land of deep darkness, but now the light is going to come. He's referring to Jesus. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, he says in the next verse, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. You understand what Paul saw, what Saul experienced on the road to Damascus was a literal event picturing what happened, what Isaiah is talking about here. God's light coming, and it was for him to understand that it already happened. Jesus came. The light came. The glory dawned. By the way, I love doing these kind of things. You know if you've been sitting here any, any amount of time, I often do these kind of things because it's so important for us to recognize even in the Old Testament, God from the beginning had a heart for all the nations to come to know him through Jesus Christ. Do you know there's another verse that comes right after it? Talking about the light and the glory of God and, and, and rising and behold, being beheld by the people. And he says in verse 3, And the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. He will draw all people to the brightness, the light, the glory of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul can say the things he said. And he would say, that's the proof, that's the argument for why I'm on trial today, because that's not how the Jews understand it. Jesus himself, when he was alive and walking on this earth, he says this. Look at this in terms of the, the discernment that light brings. He says, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What do you think for, think for a moment, what do you think Paul thought of when he would go back and read these words that Jesus said in light of his experience? I mean, he's in one of those unique situations. We have a few of those in our lives, but he's in one of those unique situations where he said, this literally happened to me. This literally happened to me, that Jesus came so that those who thought they could see would become blind and those who were blind could see. You see this light that Paul is referring to, this light in Scripture, is the glory of God, and it's also the discernment, it's also the illumination that we need. This is what leads to repentance, by the way. I've told you over and over again, repentance is about the mind understanding that God is right and we are wrong. And that happens when light comes and we see something. You've had those moments, right? You're perhaps reading the Word of God one day, and suddenly it's like, I never saw that before. There's understanding there. I didn't realize it was like that. And often it also involves us saying, that means I've been wrong about how I thought of that before. That's called repentance when we acknowledge that and say, God, I was wrong. I want to change so that my mind aligns, my understanding aligns, and I align with you and your truth. That's why Paul is talking when he talks about turning from light to darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God. He's using words like repentance, right? And he's saying, that's why I'm going and saying, repent and keep acts that are in keeping with repentance. Don't just say it, but your life should show it that you've changed. 
Paul would pick up on this theme of light again when he writes his second letter to the Corinthians. Let me read these verses for you yet this morning as well. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, little g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ today, you must confess and recognize that at one point, this verse was about you. At one point, you did not understand Jesus that way. You did not see him that way. You did not know that you, how desperately you needed the light of Christ in your life. Your eyes, your mind was veiled, was blinded by the God of this world. There are probably some sitting here today that that's still true for, by the way. I don't say that negatively or discriminatorily. That's whatever that word should end with. I don't say it in a discriminatory way. I say it simply to represent the truth. There's a distinction between light and darkness. And when the gospel is veiled, it's because the God of this world has blinded our minds to seeing it, to understanding the glory of the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the image of God. Remember when the, the three disciples went with Jesus up on the mountain and he was transfigured, light. They couldn't, they couldn't even look at him. His clothing was so bright it shone. It was a representation that they saw literally, physically in front of them of the glory of God, the image of God that Jesus Christ himself was. By the way, two verses later, Paul says this. He refers back to the creation story, and he says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. Oh, can you go back one? I'll go back there. Thank you. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Have you ever, have we ever considered how powerful the story of God's creation is when we pray for people to come to know Jesus? You see, it's the same transaction. For the God who spoke when, the, when there was void and darkness, who spoke and said, let there be light, and the light happened. It's the same kind of transaction we're interested in when we want to see people come to Christ. I suggest to us we should pray more often like that. God, you spoke light into darkness in a real way when you created the heavens and the earth. Would you now speak light into this heart, into this soul, that they may see the glory of Jesus Christ? It's an entirely fitting scriptural prayer that he would open their eyes, their hearts, that they would have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There could be a whole series of messages exploring the themes of light and darkness in Scripture. We're not going to go there this morning. I want to come to one last verse that I think is instructive for us. And it's the phrase that for the first time is revealed in Acts. But it's the phrase that Jesus says to Saul. He's going on his road and he's falling on his knees and he's blinded and he's wondering what's going on. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Saul, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What an interesting phrase. What an amazing little phrase. Now, goads, literally, in a literal sense, are these things that are pricks, and they're made to move animals specifically, but made to move them where you want them to go. The word goad, kentron, in the Greek, is figuratively refers to the divine impulse of God. The divine impulse of God. You see, Jesus comes to Paul and he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to struggle against the goads. There's a Jewish saying, by the way, 
not scriptural, but Jewish saying from antiquities, that he who strikes the goad will hurt his fist more than the goad. In other words, the goad doesn't move, doesn't change, it's hard, it's sharp. That when you struggle against the goad, which is meant to move you in a direction, it's more damaging to you than it is to the goad. You see, in some sense, in a general sense, hear this in the context of the text this morning, in a general sense, when Jesus comes to Saul and says, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats, he's referring to the fact that as much as you Pharisees, as much as you Jewish leaders are trying to wipe out and come against the name of Jesus and get rid of all his followers, look what's happening. Do you remember when we were studying the book of Acts? It's been a little while ago by now, but do you remember when we were studying the book of Acts back then? What was happening? The more and more they came against the Christians, what happened? The word of God flourished. It grew. There was more and more and more of them. This has, by the way, been the story throughout history. Those that think they're going to squash the word of God, get rid of the word of God, get rid of Christians, kill them all, the, what happens is the opposite, in fact. Jesus is telling Saul in a general sense, listen, you are pushing against the goads of God. You are pushing against God, and you will not be successful as a whole. The more you try to squander this, the more it's going to grow. Think of Jesus' own words, right? Peter, upon this confession you've made is the church. You're the rock. That confession is the rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But let me make it a little more practical, a little more applicable to our personal lives. Because the second part of the understanding of Jesus' words is to say, not only was he speaking generally to Saul, Jesus, but he was also speaking very personally to Saul, wasn't he? For Saul was on a personal mission to destroy the followers of Christ. And Jesus said, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against. It, you're going to be unsuccessful if you're going to go against what God wants to have happen in your life. God has a plan for you, Saul, and he was going to reveal that. You're, his plan is for you to be turned, turned from the direction you have been going to a different direction. His plan is for you to take the name of Jesus, in fact, not just to your own people, but to the Gentiles, to turn them from darkness to light, to open their eyes to see Jesus, so that they would be free from the kingdom of Satan, and they too be part of God's kingdom. That's going to be your message. He says, Saul, it's going to be impossible for you to keep coming against what God wants to do in your life. But let me take the second step of application then for you sitting here today, for me here today too. It will be equally difficult for us to kick against the goads that God has in our life. I am sure you have experienced this. Whether you knew you experienced it or not, I'm sure you have experienced this. When you are pursuing a life that is not honoring unto God, life becomes difficult. Things don't go like you want them to. That's not to say life goes perfectly when you're following God. You know this. I've said this plenty of times up, here, up from this pulpit up here. But it's different. It's different when you are running away from God. It's different when you are trying to move away from what you know God wants you to do. There's, a, there's just this unique, this kicking against the goads, this struggle, this difficulty this, this, everything falls apart. Everything I try to put together falls apart. Everything I try to make work out doesn't work out like it's supposed to. Perhaps when we're in those places, we ought to say, 
Maybe Jesus is trying to tell me it's hard for me to kick against the goats. That there's a divine impulse, there's a plan that the Lord God has for me that I'm not walking in. And I need to humble myself instead of keeping on pounding my fist or pounding my head against those goats that are there and making myself a bloody mess. I need to recognize, I need to humble myself. I need to say, God, you were right. I want to do what you want me to do. If you find yourself in that position this morning, I would suggest to you that you spend a lot of time with the Lord Jesus Christ, a lot of time in his word, a lot of time with him in prayer, that you allow him to speak to you about what it is that he would want. There may well be other people involved, other believers. There may well be circumstances involved and things like that, but I would tell you the chief tools that you have at your disposal are the illumination of the word of God through the Holy Spirit of Christ. That you may see who God is, who you are, and what he wants from you. I can assure you, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. And you will not find it successful. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word. It at the same time and on multiple levels brings great encouragement to us. It also brings conviction to us. At the same time, it brings great comfort and peace to us. It also brings exhortation. It also brings words that spur us, words that perhaps review or remind us of where the goads are in our life, the pricks are, where those things are, the boundaries. Perhaps as part of that, God, I just, I want to confess myself. And perhaps on behalf of the, the church body here, I would encourage you, if this fits for you, by the way, brothers and sisters, you say the same thing. But God, in that way, though it is painful, though it, it, it often means blood, so to speak, maybe at least figuratively means blood, I'm grateful that you have provided a hedge of thorns. You provided uh, these goads for us that keep us in your will. For I would rather be bloodied up a bit and arrive hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. And to have the life of ease doing what I want to do. And here, depart from me. You worker of iniquity, I never knew you. I confess, God, that I'm thick-skulled many times. Stiff-necked, hard-hearted. All of those word pictures you give in your word of us, of me. Which means I need those goads. I want to walk according to your will, God. I want to know you. Thank you that you've given us of your word. Thank you, Jesus, when you left, that you would send the Spirit of Christ, that you would send the Holy Spirit to us, that we can be indwelt, that he can live in us. He can, in fact, guide us into truth, remind us of where we need to be. That means I must make a decision to submit to him. God, I want to make that. I make that decision this morning. I pray there's others here this morning. There's never anything wrong with just a moment of decision to say, that's the choice I'm making, to submit to the spirit of Christ within me, to submit to the word of God that you've given to me, that he illuminates to me, to submit to Jesus Christ, who is my Lord, as well as my Savior. Thank you so much, God, that in the fullness of time, you sent Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, to set free, to bring forgiveness, to justify those who were left helpless. That was me. That was me. 
We give you praise and glory. We want to offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, as Paul would exhort us to do, holy and pleasing to you. Thank you. God, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand this morning? I'm going to give you a benediction. Again, as often is, my benediction is very simple but very focused. God, we want to receive your Holy Spirit, not just uh, so that we can feel good about ourselves, but as a direction for our lives that we live under his influence, that we represent the name of Jesus Christ well, that we bring glory to you, Father. So would you fill us, and we want to surrender to him. Thank you for granting us the favor of your peace when we walk according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace this morning.